Welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today, Rabbi Wilds speaks with Liel Leibowitz. Liel is an Israeli-American journalist, author, media critic, and video game scholar. He's written about everything from the Supreme Court to Spider-Man to Pac-Man. They had a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, we are live. I am super excited about my guest this afternoon. Hello, welcome, Liel. My pleasure. I have to say, your 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 shelfie game is really strong. I thought mine was something, but you you take the cake. Um, I've got a lot of other books on the other shelves and in my office. So if I really wanted to impress you, I would just bring all of my svarim, all my Jewish books, and just pile them up behind me. I need to I need to have some credibility. So this is what I got. It's either that or my degrees, you know. But anyway, thank you so much. I display much. liquor, so what do I know? <laughs> it tells us about something about each other, I guess. Uh, so Liel Leibowitz is Leibowitz. Please tell me if I'm mispronouncing that. Pronouncing it very well. Okay, Liel Leibowitz uh, is our guest on the Wildcast MGE's podcast. Um, he is uh, from Tel Aviv. He is born and bred in the Holy Land, and he's an Israeli-American journalist, author, media critic, and yes video game scholar. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but you're going to be hearing about it. He's also the co-host of the wildly popular podcast, Unorthodox. Um, as I mentioned, Liel was born and raised in Israel, became interested in America at the very young age of nine. And he was also um, a non-commissioned officer in the spokesperson's unit of the IDF. He got his BA from Tel Aviv University. And then after camp coming to New York City, got his MS in journalism and a PhD in communications from Columbia University. I hope my mother is listening because this sounds not at all like me and yet very impressive. Yeah, well, you know, listen, I need to establish a credibility and then we can have a regular conversation. Lastly, um, Liel served as culture editor of the Jewish Week and uh, has written for The Nation, The New Republic. Um, and he is now the senior writer and executive producer a video and interactive media for American Jewish Tablet Museum, um, magazine, excuse me, not museum. Um, hasn't been relegated to a museum yet. Uh, it is a very active and wonderful publication. Uh, and he was a visiting professor at New York University and is currently a visiting professor. I know this personally at Yeshiva University because Liel, my son Yehuda, who is a senior in high school, is taking a early admissions college class with yours. Well, not yours truly, with you. Look at that. <laughs> he was taking your Zionism course. You're co-teaching that with Mayor Soloveitchik, who's a friend. And um, he unfortunately couldn't stay in it, didn't work with his schedule, but he got to sit in on a few classes. He's just a senior in high school, but he's got a real interest in you and in your writings, your teachings, and that's our connection anyway. Uh, I'm I'm very happy to hear this you're also hearing another uh member of my family now in in live uh broadcast this is lila who's very excited to be here on this podcast as well well we may have a few questions for her as well so um thank you so much for joining us and thank you for being such a wonderful teacher to my son and to so many other people um i'm gonna get right into it you've experienced uh in your adulthood some real changes uh, you've moved, it seems, a little from left of center to right of center when it comes, I'd say, in, in the political sphere. And you've also become more observant over the years. Um, and this is interesting to me, you know, Jewishly, religiously observant. It's interesting to me because, as you might know, I've devoted my life to Jewish outreach and education. MGs primarily for 20s and 30s who are not <clears throat> coming from uh, the Orthodox community, from the religious world. Uh, they've got maybe a bar bat mitzvah, you know, Hebrew school background, high holidays, Passover, Seder kind of thing, and learning to um, to learn more. And, and, and this crazy political climate in which people have sort of pigeonholed themselves pretty discreetly, it's just impressive to me uh, when I meet someone that's changed one way or the other. So tell us a little about that. Well, you know, uh, there are so many uh, wonderfully glib and uh, insincere answers I could summon uh, that will sound really good. Uh, first and foremost, of course, is insisting, as every good convert uh, is legally obliged to do, 
that I haven't moved a, an inch. It's the rest of the world that has, you know, inconveniently shifted around me. Uh, but I think if I'm being uh, fully honest, uh, the, then the real answer that uh, that resonates is that I simply don't know. Uh, these processes uh, are very much aligned with the old Jewish spirit that that we mentioned uh, not long ago in the Parsha of Nasevenishma. You know, we we will do first uh, and and only then here. Uh, these these processes uh, were sparked in me by a whole host of of observations that uh that sprung from paying attention to the shifting socioeconomic and political landscapes uh around me they were sparked by personal uh you know life events uh like becoming a father and sure. you know whether i liked it or not uh maturing or or at least aging uh but really how old is your how old is your son or daughter uh, a 9 year old and a 7 year old so wow. we're we're in the trenches wow. right now um, and so I think really the most honest answer is that these are urges. Uh, you could call them, uh, you know, primordial. You could call them, uh, if you're Freudian about it, the return of the repressed. Uh, you could say, uh, if you're Rav Kukian about it, that it's uh, it's some kind of Jewish spark that resides uh, in all of us. But at some point it calls out to you. Uh, and, and I think if you, uh, if you open up uh, heart, uh, mind, and soul and, and you let it do its thing, uh, it leads you to realms that you weren't expecting. It it was very much like this when I decided, for example, to keep kosher, something that was personally, uh, intellectually speaking, inconceivable uh, to me, being, you know, many cheeseburgers removed from the faith of my fathers, as someone who used to enjoy uh, bacon on a, on a, on a tri-daily basis. Uh, yet as soon as I sort of took this leap of faith to, again, conjure, you know, <laughs> Exodus imagery, um, I found out that not only was it not difficult at all, in fact, it felt wonderful. Uh, and that was the strangest part of it for me, uh, this, this uh, realization that there is a higher moral order uh, that, that, that you know, precedes the intellectual order, that, that there are things that feel good and feel right and, and just urge you to do them, even though if you were uh, asked uh, to explain them intellectually, you <laughs> simply couldn't. Wow. Well, thank you for that. I mean, what, what can you tell us a little about your background? Just growing up in Israel and coming to the states, what, were you? Um, sure. Yeah. Just did did you go to day schools, Jewish schools, not Jewish schools? I'm just curious. So, so, so the mishpocha, the family, uh, was uh, was one, uh, as we say, with great yichus, with with great uh, rabbinic uh, kind of uh, respect. My great great great. Grandfather was was a uh, man by the name of Josef Chaim Zonenfeld. Oh, uh, was the right. Uh, if you know the name, oh, is is the that I usually get is a famous rabbi who was the the fiercely anti-Zionist, fiercely Haredi leader uh, of of the stringently Orthodox uh, community in pre-state Israel. Uh, and most of my family is still Haredi. Uh, we were the kind of uh, odd, odd clan out, uh, the, the ones who moved to Tel Aviv and, and, and were a little bit further removed uh, from observance. However, you know, I grew up uh, at least firmly traditional, if not always very observant. And yet, as I grew older, uh, I, I sort of uh, drifted a little bit, not in my faith uh, in God, which has always uh been and remained very strong and unwavering, uh, not in my uh, Jewish pride, which was equally as strong, but in this idea that there was any real correlation between keeping mitzvot, between any any form of Jewish observance, uh, and 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 the higher order, as I saw it then, of some kind of spiritual connection that one mm-hmm. could feel just by dint of being Judaism. I thought uh, naively, as as I understand now. Um, that I could still be very much uh, in the thick of things. Uh, that 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 the rules, uh, such as they were, didn't apply to me. That that I could uh, giddily embody uh, the best of all worlds uh, by by being a PhD in in a you know as we said video games, as I'm sure we'll talk a little bit uh, about later. By uh, teaching in a in a big secular university. Uh, by by feeling completely enmeshed uh, in 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 the sort of secular progressive world, and at the same time, uh, having nothing but uh, my declaration of faith to uh, to certify my my membership in in the club. Um, 
And the older I got, the older I realized that it simply didn't work that way. Uh, in part because I felt that um, I, I felt very, very strongly uh, the the vicissitudes uh, of of the collapse of of the secular world order, uh, the the let's say vision of the Enlightenment uh, that we're all experiencing these days, uh, mm-hmm. the, the falling apart of political systems, the disintegration of uh, formerly great cultural institutions into a shadow uh, of their former selves. The, the kind of disappearance of, of kind of essential corners of culture that I thought would be here forever. Uh, and at the same time, I also realized, which I guess only comes at least to those of us who, like myself, are more dense than others uh, when, when you grow a bit older, uh, the, the true beauty uh, and wisdom of practice, uh, the way that it does things to you, the way that it connects you to community, the way that it forces you to take these ideas from the mere realm of, you know, abstractions mm-hmm. uh, and and sort of like, you know, oh, general perceptions into the realm of lived reality, of lived experience, which is so much deeper and so much more evocative and so much more moving. And and the the investment <laughs> is far greater. But man, is the payoff uh, ever so richer. Wow. Thank you. Wow. That's, you know, I appreciate that um, the sentiment of the focus on the practice. We could sit here till we're blue in the face and philosophizing, but, you know, I, I've always been trying to teach this, um, though, as you can see, I'm not a Lubavitcher, but the Lubavitch, you know, who believes so much in just put those filling on, put it on, do it, practice and see what, what happens afterwards. That kind of approach. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what you were trying to articulate, but but you know, I, I come from a little more of a rational, cerebral kind of background where everything needs to make 100% perfect rational sense before you go. And you know, as you said before, the nasa vinishma, just sort of accepting and doing and seeing how that plays out, is something that I also personally have been getting into uh, the last couple of years. I wasn't going to ask you this till later, but since we're still on your personal life. Um, if you don't mind, your personal spiritual outlook. You know, your father, actually, my son came home and was like, Dad, did you hear about this guy's father? So your father, Ronnie Leibowitz, you should live and be well, was Israel's most famous bank robber. There's a stamp, I'm told, with your father's face on it. He's a legend in Israel. So I'm just wondering, what was it like, <clears throat> first of all, being the son of a famous bank robber, Excuse me, I've never been able to ask anyone on this podcast that question. And how did that play into what we were just talking about now in terms of your own spiritual development? Um, it, it What was it like is a question that is very hard for me to answer uh, because it would it would necessitate me knowing any other experience in any mm-hmm. other reality, which is simply not the case. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also speaking with my children with an earshot, so I'm going to be selecting my, my words more carefully than, than I usually would. Uh, but, but I will answer the question uh, by saying that uh, there is definitely something very sobering about it. I think that the great, um, the only great enemy we have, or, 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 or one of very few great enemies that we have, uh, is, is this notion of, of comfort, of convenience, of, of sinking into a life routine uh, that is unexamined simply because there's no reason to examine it. Uh, and that was very much my reality uh, until my father was arrested. Uh, we uh, were an affluent uh, upper, upper middle class family. Uh, we grew up in this, um, what I understand now to be a, a, a deeply privileged uh, existence. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden to be thrust into a routine of of having to visit prison weekly, uh, of having to interact with a whole host uh, of of humans uh, who are nothing like the ones that I had known, uh, of having to consider uh, really in in the grandest you know most Dostoevskian sense of of the world uh, of the word uh, fate right uh, what happens when 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 sort of un- unthinkable unspeakable happens and 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 how and how uh, the world so often works uh, entirely independently of your own plans, hopes, wishes, and assertions uh, made me a very different person. And frankly, I don't know that I would have very much liked the kind of person I would have been uh, had that not been the case. Wow. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I hope you don't mind um, putting you on the spot. Um, and 
And I, th I think that was not only acceptable for your kids, but um, your dog as well. I think everybody was probably happy with that answer. Quiet, in quiet awe. <laughs> um, Contemplating so, destiny. Well, let me just, you know, most people who have PhDs from Columbia don't write books about Spider-Man and Pac-Man. So tell us, a, uh, you know, you've written books about video games and comic books. What draws you um, to write about these areas that, you know, a lot of people would think are just for teenagers or more geeks. Uh, tell us a little what, what's your attraction and um, what's the lore? I, I think that the, um, the, the truly sacred, uh, and this is uh, an observation I am uh, precisely the, the eighth million uh, person to have come to, uh, there's a whole host of, of Hasidic uh, masters and, and, and fellow smart Jews who've gone there way before me. Uh, I think that the truly sacred uh, so so often resides not uh, in these hallowed halls uh, of, of, of well-analyzed, well-examined uh, intellectual traditions, but precisely uh, down, down in the street uh, where people are doing uh, things, where people are having pursuits that uh that that open up uh you know hearts that 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 excite people for for real reasons and and i don't believe for one second uh that we do these things that we read comic books that we play video games simply as distraction i think that is a very grim view of of humankind uh, i think there is something about these media that encompass very 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 ancient Traditions, you know, it's it's spiritual energy, like every other form of energy, never wastes away. It simply gets recycled. And so when I started thinking about video games, which I did from a very early age, but when I started thinking about it as an adult, I realized how much um, about video games not only replicated, but but really sort of embodied the same kind of of emotional, psychological, and even spiritual procedures that you would see and say religious practices. Uh, I, I did a host of actual experiments uh, with, with gamers and found out that, uh, that being in a trance-like uh, state, that being actually induced into a, a kind of, you know, head nodding, uh, anti, not anti-intellectual, but unintellectual, non-thinking, just totally swept away type of condition is actually completely crucial to to game playing and also very central to why so many people play games we don't play games to quote unquote while away the time we play games because whereas in every other corner of our existence we are required to be these um present atomized human subject that thinks and and gives like very concrete responses that are tethered to logic and and reason there has to be some uh, realm of our life uh, in which we are free to simply connect, in which we're free to simply engage, in which we're free to simply kind of, uh, to use a, a word uh, or a term popularized by a, by a great uh, rabbi, uh, the late Ram Das, to simply just be here now. Um, and and games really let you do it. They 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 shut off reason in in the best way. Uh, they plug you into deeper reservoirs that that religion formerly uh, used to be the main conduit to. Uh, and and to me to to look at at these connections and to understand what happens to you when you plug back into them is so incredibly fascinating. Because if something is that meaningful to that many people, it's not just narcotics. It's much more than that. So you're saying that because it's not cerebral, I mean, there is some part of the brain that is operational when you're playing video games, but you're saying because it doesn't require you to think in the normative ways we're used to, and you can get so into it, you're saying that in that practice of being present in something is a very important exercise, or is there something about the game's the competitive aspect or the, the video I, I'm, I'm I want to drill down a little when trying to understand so I'll, 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 I'll answer I'll answer like this um, we had um, an experiment designed in which we asked uh, players to play video games for for long periods of time and we would interrupt them uh, in different points throughout the game uh, and we would then ask them to uh, answer a simple, a, a series of simple uh, math questions that were designed to basically make sure that their cognitive 
capabilities were all kind of tethered uh, elsewhere. And then we had them return to the game and uh, sort of gauged using a whole host of metrics how easy or difficult it was for them to sink right back into the game. And we did this at, at two varying points. Uh, we, we repeated this, this experiment and, and did it in, in varying points uh, in the game, some of which uh, were, were highly uh, sort of uh, critical to the plot, big reveals, big fight scenes, big things that you really would be completely immersed in the game. And some completely random, uh, you know, just meandering about in the world game looking for an entrance or, or doing something in which the actual involvement with the game would have been very, very low. Uh, and time and again and again, uh, we found the exact same thing. We found that where you were in the game completely didn't matter. Uh, you could be in a, a highly... Uh, exciting, thrilling point, or you could be in a totally meaningless point. The only thing that uh, had any implication, any correlation on, on how difficult it was for you to reimmerse yourself in the game was how long you've been playing the game for. If you've been playing for 20 minutes, you were right back in the thick of things uh, before you were interrupted. If you were playing for four hours before you were interrupted, it was virtually impossible for you to get back in the game because we realized you had just been pulled out of something that could only be described as a trance-like state, um, which which every uh, self-respecting religion, uh, our own tradition very much included, uh, goes through great lengths to give you this opportunity to to be in in that mindset. For example, you know, it, to me, the, the the reason that you start uh, each day with a, I don't know how long it takes you, it takes me about 40, 45 minutes to pray shachris properly. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. It's because you get sucked out of the rhythm of the everyday world and into a rhythm that is different. Uh, Shabbat sucks you into a rhythm of life that is different. Um, and I think one of the perils of, of life in an overly rationalized, overly subjectified uh, uh, world is, is that you lose your ability to do that. Uh, everything is... You lose your ability to, to get back into those... You, you lose your ability to get out of time. You lose your ability to mm -hmm. step out of reason. You lose your mm -hmm. ability to stop being a, a concrete, atomized individual who assesses yeah. everything as, as a calculating machine that always has to weigh you know, one set of considerations against another. You just want to get lost in the flow of creation. And I know it sounds very... You no, know, no, no, no. This is there, incredible. But, but I think that's what games do. I mean, they take you out, uh, out, out, out of yourself, out of your own skin, out of your head. You know, this is something that so many, I think, good shrinks used to tell their therapists. Get out of your own mind. Get out of your own head. Right. Uh, it's exactly what games do. They take you out and they plug you into this realm of creation. And, and if you want to get too metaphorical about it, the game is actually really interesting because uh, there is a code. Uh, video games are, you know, they're, they're a software. Uh, but you're playing in a world created by a designer who you've never seen, who set out rules that you will never fully understand, that you can't actually ever really follow to their perfection. Uh, and yet you're so uh, thrilled and so grateful to be in the in the thick of that creation because you get to experience something that allows you to, for one fleeting moment, plug into something that is larger than yourself. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm thinking tefillah. I'm thinking prayer. Not only because you brought it up as an example, but that's such a, a struggle. You know, it's a struggle for me personally. I, I mentioned before I'm a little more cerebrally oriented, although I've gotten in the last couple of years, I study with my son the book of Tanya, and I'm actually teaching a class in it now because it forces me to have to know it well enough to explain it. And um, you say you're not Chabad. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I'm, uh, I'm a little of a. Um, self-contradiction but i just find this fascinating in other words you want to you want to get people more lost in the flow and I, I, that's so important to be jewish to be uh, you know to actually get something out of these mitzvot as opposed to just sort of checking them off that i performed mitzvah a mitzvah b but i actually became a part of it i'm, I'm absorbed within it whether it's a prayer experience whether it's shabbat um i don't know if you can do that let's say with kashrut that i'm eating this you know, food, you mentioned a cheeseburger before, I'm, I'm eating a kosher meat as opposed to non-kosher meat. I don't know if how that would work, but that would be amazing. You know, have you had any success with, with actually using video games to help people 
you know, learn how to access that flow, whatever it is they're trying to get into, let's say in our case, Judaism. See that that's that's an amazing amazing question. That a while ago, uh, our our friends in the in the uh, sadly uh, dearly departed Bim Bomb uh, created a, a Leviticus video game. Uh, I just thought it was the absolute greatest thing ever because Leviticus <laughs> has that logic, right? It's like here's a book with a bunch of rules, and if you don't follow them, bad things happen. Right. Uh, but 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 the, the connection here uh, to me is 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 not at all tenuous, and 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 this is. I, I will not be surprised, even though I have no um, real evidence or, or numbers to, to offer here, but I will not be surprised if, if the sort of return to tradition that we're seeing now, especially among so many young people, has to do with the popularity of, of video games as a medium, because it all goes back to this realization that I, that I sort of stumbled on uh, to and, and that we discussed a while ago, the notion of, of what happens uh, when you do instead of think, right? Because you, mm -hmm. well, I understand uh, Judaism's commands and precepts because I have read a book uh, and I'm a very smart person. I have a doctoral degree from an Ivy League university and I'm, I'm perfectly capable of, of abstracting things. And by the way, it's kind of icky and gross to me that I have this religion that focuses on so many things that I have to do because doing is for suckers, right? We're, we're more mm -hmm. evolved being. We're enlightened. We, we, we we're man who thinks not man who does and then you get into this point when you stop reading and you start playing video games you get into the point when you stop thinking about judaism and you start practicing judaism and and you realize oh my uh omg as as we say in both video games and judaism <laughs> ironically right uh, it's a totally different thing because once you embody it it feels different because then you have to ask yourself the question that that you just asked. I think I think so brilliantly. Like, what what am I what am I doing here? Right. <laughs> am I doing this right? Am I feeling the right things? Am I, which again, prayer three times a day forces you to do always. And here's the thing: I don't know about you. Every morning, every afternoon, and every evening, I feel like I have failed at davening. I have failed at prayer. I fail three times a day at prayer. My only hope and my only source of consolation is that every day I fail a little bit better. <laughs> every day I understand a little bit more about what I got wrong the day before. Uh, and, and it opens up a little bit of, an, of another intersection. These are things that I will never be able to think my way into because you can't. This is why, not to be too crass about it, but this is why there are no good, uh, there's no good literature that aptly describes sex. Uh, and think your way into that. You can yeah. think your way into some kinds of experiences, and there are not many of them in, in, in human tradition, that uh, simply transcend our ability to, to sort of abstract, turn things into abstractions. Uh, you had to be there. You have to be here now. Video games do that. They keep you here now. Wow. I guess that's why um, our good friend Scott supplied me with this great quote from you. Uh, it was in an interview given to NYU student Steinhardt News. You said that every gamer, I believe, is secretly an aspiring theologian. Mm -hmm. um, and I would imagine what I really that... meant, which I could say to you and not to them, is like every gamer is seriously an aspiring chassid. <laughs> well, that is really what the Hasidic world that I've taken like a, a couple of, you know, dip my toes into is much more about the experiential than it is the 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 understanding the cognitive rational understanding and that's hard because it's it's hard to break with those with that kind of motif or that kind of way that we're used to operating um and you know it's like what you said before about you know getting ourselves out of our own heads because it does keep and this is very personal and autobiographical i i feel like it does keep me from feeling more connected to hashem um it it keeps me from getting my own students who sometimes much much younger than me don't have the same you know learned background perhaps as I do but they're a little more tapped in sometimes because they're not thinking as much they're trying to be in the moment they're trying to feel whatever it is that these words that we're saying in the tefillah are supposed to make us feel or whatever we're supposed to experience on Shabbat and you're right there's no book there's no book that can capture that and um I, and I just it's so interesting that a a video game, you know, the only justification I could ever have as a kid, I remember I used to go to this uh, Borscht Bed Hotel when I was a kid, Grossinger's, I don't know if you ever heard of it, 
but um, it's unfortunately uh, no longer. And um, it, uh, wait, hold on a second. I just lost you there. I apologize. Um, it, uh, I remember Shabbat. So not everybody in the hotel was uh, Sabbath observant and, um, you know, and, and they, the video games were going all Shabbos, a big glass booth with like 20 video games. And I used to literally <laughs> walk around on the floor looking for an extra quarter, you know, because I ran out of all the change my parents and everyone else I snored off of in the hotel. And then literally I'm waiting on Shabbos to like get back to my Miss Pac-Man, my my, uh, I don't know, space invaders. I'm really dating myself now, but, but, um, you know, it was always kind of looked at as a, uh, like a vice, you know, as, as something which was just, I can justify because I need a break from my real things in life. And what you're suggesting is that that kind of activity, anything else besides video games that might be helpful to our listeners that they can use as practice uh, to me, I'm, I'm all ears that we can use as practice to help get ourselves more in the flow of what we're doing, because I think that's so critical to being an observant Jew. Well, you know, uh, there is there is so much, Joan. I love this image, by the way, of, of you sort of like you know trolling around looking looking for quarters. Uh, just you know, not 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 to, to dwell too much on on the sort of theology of video games, but but even if you consider this. Um, the notion uh, of of scarcity, right? The idea that there is something um, that uh, exists theoretically in abundance uh, that that is limited for you, because video games don't have to end, uh, especially now that we've moved from uh, from the arcade in which you know putting in that other quarter is the business model to to the home console. Uh, you could play as long as you want. Why is the phrase "game over"? So uh, incredibly sort of it kind of enmeshed uh, and, and rooted in, in our culture. Uh, well, I think uh, like every good theologian uh, would understand uh, right away, it is because the uh, illusion uh, of, of, the, of the infinitude of, of time and space uh, for an average human being uh, whose life is but a, but a fleeting moment, uh, is is something that we need to sort of grapple with, and this notion of of a game that suddenly ends, uh, of of being thrust out of the cycle and back into it, is actually a terrific, uh, I think, reminder. Yes, what else does this? Uh, I'm, I mean, I think probably to anyone listening, I've probably crossed uh, the line uh, in, in, into the kooky uh, a long time ago, but but I would say that uh, some years ago, I um. I had the the privilege of of learning transcendental meditation, uh, which is something that I still practice. Uh, I don't want to say religiously because I mm -hmm. reserve that term now for, <laughs> for other things, uh, but practice daily uh, with with great great results. And it was actually uh, kind of amazing to me, having started doing it at more or less the same time when I started davening three times daily, realizing how transcendental meditation, in particular, but really all forms of meditation, have in common with the notion of prayer, both being predicated on the cyclical emotions in which you're asked to focus on something that by definition is external. Uh, it's a mantra. It's some prayer written thousands of years ago by men who lived in very different realities than your own. And, and, then, and then a natural thing happens to you, which is your mind wanders. Uh, it wanders back to you. It wanders back to the things that bother you. It wanders back to your life or your kids or or the job or anything that, uh, God forbid, your health, anything that's literally on your mind. Uh, and then I, I apologize, my messages. I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't either. I got and the same problem. Don't worry. You're crazy, good. Crazy, crazy, you're good. You're crazy, good. Crazy. Um, and, and, and then here's what happens to you. Uh, you find yourself in this cycle of trying to figure out how to get back to the things that you know you're supposed to be focusing on, the prayer, the meditation. But as you do, you also find yourself noticing what it was about your own thoughts that kept you preoccupied. Mm -hmm. And it puts you yeah. in, in this weird condition in which you both get to literally know yourself better and also get to become more and more and more engaged in the thing that you are doing because now your mind is free. You've acknowledged, you've checked off that little button that says, okay, I understand. I am very preoccupied about my boss being a jerk to me. Now can we please get back to the <laughs> mantra? Now can we please get back to Modiani? Yes, we can. 
and and it works wonderfully well. That you should know the uh, the Balatanya actually talks about like inappropriate thoughts that, and he says it. He spends a lot of time saying. Uh, by the way, just anyone listening, the Balatanya was Roshner Zaman Liadi, who was the first founding uh, Chabad, um, brilliant, brilliant uh, thinker and halachicist as well. And he said that, you know, sometimes thoughts come come into our minds and we can't necessarily control that. What we can control is to whether or not we're going to dwell on the thought or we're going to just swipe it, push it along. Or if it's like a little bubble, think of it like, like a, a thought bubble, pop it. Um, we may not be able to control it entering our minds, but we can de- uh, we can decide whether we want to engage it. We want to whether you know let it sit there for a while or not. I think that's really amazing. Tell me a little about the um, you've written about Stanley uh, Marvel comics um, as uniquely Jewish. Um, what are Lee's? What is it about Lee's characters that are more Jewish than let's say DC's? Oh. Um, ah. Superman, Batman, I could, Wonder I could, Woman. I could lie lie on the couch behind me and talk about this all day. Uh, well, so, I do have another. I have another follow up, and I don't want to take too much of your time. So, yeah, but please. So you know, we uh, we 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 were sort of launched into this world of of superheroes uh, with these like two archetypal uh, characters, Batman and Superman. Of course, both were created uh, by Jewish artists, uh, but. Uh, Jewish artists operating and writing um, in in a, in a time in in American culture in which uh, you know Jewish culture and, and Jewish uh, artists were were still not uh, as ascendant as they would be just a decade or two later, um, and these characters uh, I very much believe are the literal embodiments uh, of of the two kind of uh, poles of of the Protestant drama in, in American life, the head and the heart, right? On the one hand, uh, you have a character like Superman, who uh, some say Moses, but I argue very fiercely, uh, ferociously in my book, that uh, is a, a really kind of Christ reincarnate. Uh, he is uh, the one who uh, does not quite die for our sins, but takes a bullet for our sins uh, every day. He's uh, infallible and impervious to all uh, sorts of, of human um, kind of, interactions and, and attempts to to unseat him. Uh, he is also uh, the embodiment of the fundamentalist feeling that uh, has uh, fueled so many tent revivals. Uh, you could hear, you know, the, the sort of uh, notions of Superman uh, there in, in, in words of theologians like Jonathan Edwards. You know, this is this is the, the manifestation of the complete uh, fiery person who comes and redeems in one yeah. fell swoop. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Bruce Wayne, uh, who is a person with absolutely no superpowers uh, except for uh, a large brain uh, and uh, an infinite uh, bank account, who, uh, by virtue of uh, using his God-given talent, uh, creates and using his, not his heart, but his head, uh, creates this mechanism called Batman uh, with which he could make the world better. Um, and and serious theologians like Gary Wills have written a lot about about this kind of about this kind of tension between the head and the heart that that was uh, at at the at the core uh, I don't want to say at the heart of at the core of uh, the Protestant drama. This is in in many ways what say for example the Scopes Monkey Trial was about right that the clash between these two ways of understanding life fundamentalism on the one hand and modernism on the other hand. Uh, now we should just know that you know I, I should make the bracha Baruch Shikivanti. There's a blessing you make when you come up with something that you think a great scholar thought about. So I did a, an Eli talk, which is like a Jewish version of TED Talk, and I used the Batman Superman exactly. I just thought of this on the spot, which was that Superman, especially when he levitates a little, a, a tiny bit off the ground, and there's a, some, some of the movies, I'm not even talking about the, the, the DC, the comics, but in the movies, they sometimes have him with a glow, mm-hmm. and he's levitating, and he's this picture-perfect figure from some other planet that is sent to earth to save a uh, and redeem you know uh, mankind which is incapable of redeeming itself i mean it's christianity 101 batman who you just said you know you articulated it so beautifully no superpowers whatsoever you know he's basically bruce wayne dressed up as as batman whereas superman is really um superman who dresses down as clark kent but those, you know, and I, I tried to, I'll send it to you if you want, um, anybody can, you know, um, it, it, that really, I think, helps 
distinguish between the Jewish concept of the Mashiach mm-hmm. and the Christian concept of the Messiah. Uh, this picture-perfect individual coming to save mankind as opposed to the Jewish concept of the Mashiach, who was from King David. And King David, we know as as a great poet and warrior and righteous, was also someone who was quite flawed. And um, not only from the David side, but the other side as well. Uh, Mayor Salvechik, your colleague who you teach with, has a brilliant article about this on how the Jewish Mashiach comes from purposely a a very flawed kind of family. So because the goal of the Jewish Mashiach is not to save us, but inspire us to save ourselves. That's Batman as opposed to Superman. I don't, I don't mean to enter, jump in. Enter Stan Lee and the Marvel Universe. Uh, okay. You know, uh, I, I, uh, this is a digression that I promise will will take us somewhere that that we actually need to go. So, um, I, I, uh, a year ago, I, I started uh, this daily uh, Dafiomi podcast called Take One, um, which tries to kind of have brief conversations of, about uh, the Talmud with with people from all walks of life to to show the great big relevance uh, of of this text. And and the one thing that that has always moved me uh, so deeply about the Talmud is is sort of considering it in context. You know, here are a bunch of rabbis uh, and they're sitting around and having these conversations that we sort of gloss over uh, in the Haggadah because uh, we really want to get to the part where we finally eat. But the conversation <laughs> we're having is actually quite deep. Um, the temple has just been destroyed. Thousands of years or hundreds of years of of, of Jewish uh, tradition, Jewish life as it is lived, uh, is suddenly impossible because this temple-based religion uh, is now uh, found itself uh, with with its very heart ripped out. What do you do? Uh, And and then they have two incredible insights. The first is that you could take something that previously was lived in the real world with a real place, with real sacrifices and real pilgrimages – and put it in a book, which in of itself is a radical idea. But then comes an even more radical idea, because they understand that if the book is just a list of rules, that if the book is just kind of a a very strict, straightforward uh, assertion of you should do this or not do that, or or even worse, if it's just a bunch of inspiring aphorisms that leave it up to us to interpret them, it will be lost because we will rebel against them because we will come out and say, ah, I don't know. This is no longer relevant to me, but I don't know why I should do this. Things have changed. Circumstances change. I don't have to keep all these rules. And then everything will sort of fizzle away. So instead of giving us rules, they give us arguments. They give us a record of so many conversations about so many topics, inviting us to join in with them and be a part of their thought process so that we too may embody the same thought process and learn how to think as they thought and and feel as they felt and keep something alive for generations that is much, much, much more powerful than simply demanding obedience. And this is what Stan Lee did uh, with the Marvel Universe. He gave us a whole host of very Talmudic superheroes that, unlike Batman or Superman, are disasters, are people <laughs> with so many flaws and so many appetites that spend, you know, who spend half their time bickering with each other, disagreeing with each other, setting each other up for failure, but at the same time, talking with one another, loving one another, embodying a real community, modeling a real sense of, of Klal Israel together, of, of real caring and love, even for, especially for, people they really couldn't stand. Um, and, and once that happens, uh, the understanding uh, of, of or, or that spirit of the Talmud uh, is captured and brought to life. Uh, it is, to, to quote another one of my great teachers, Leonard Cohen, <laughs> a natural for living with feet, right? It, it is a... It is a uh, reminder that even the mightiest among us uh, are totally, totally fallible, that even the most powerful among us are subject to the same human insecurities and failures and fears, and that all of us together have no other way of doing this except for all of us together, which is an insight that the mighty Batman could never quite muster. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Um. Yeah, what's the name of the book that you wrote? That some of this is Stan Lee, A Life in Comics. Uh, okay, it, a, an an analysis, a, a very Jewish theological analysis of of Marvel uh, Comics' greatest characters. Okay, guys, um, you heard it, Stan Lee. Um, 
That, thank you so much for sharing that. That was amazing. I want to just shift because I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, you uh, recent piece in Tablet magazine. You wrote that the Supreme Court emerged as a microcosm. We're, we're shifting gears here um, in its decision about religious observance here in New York City in regard to COVID. Uh, what did you mean by that? Um, well, you know, so that case uh, was passed down to, to those who, who don't uh, remember or, or weren't paying much attention because it was it literally came on, on the eve of, of Thanksgiving. Um, and it basically took to task uh, the, the state uh, for, for handing down uh, a, a deeply irrational uh, set of, of, of guidances uh, when it came to what kind of institutions could or could not remain operational uh, during COVID. Uh, what the Supreme Court, among other things, said uh, that, uh, one, uh, it still remained uh, unclear why, say, a liquor store uh, could do brisk business, uh, but a shul uh, really couldn't. Uh, and it remained even more unclear why uh, you would limit uh, attendance at a shul for, say, 10 people. Uh, whereas some buildings are actually physically equipped to handle safely uh, a far, far, far larger um, number of people daily. Uh, what this really came down to, and, and this is sort of the, the core of my piece, uh, is, is the tension that we're seeing right now uh, between fundamentalism uh, and, and common sense. Uh, and it is not the side that you would think <laughs> would embody each one of these arguments that actually ends up embodying them. Because I think what we're seeing right now is that uh, many uh, people who in other circumstances uh, define themselves as liberal, uh, progressive, uh, committed and beholden to science and to reason and to straightforward thought, uh, would go ahead and support policies and politicians like, well, you can't be in a synagogue more than 10 people and even though, you know, again, the, some shills out there are, are built to seat 3,000. And so even 300 could be done very, very safely. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think... Where, where, can, I, can I jump up? Where do you think... So what, what do you think motivated that? Um, I mean, I'm happy about the Supreme Court decision. What do you think motivated New York State? Uh, or what do you think is motivating individuals um, who profess this, you know, um, scientific, I, rational I approach? I find that uh that trying to 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 assert uh other people's motivations uh is is a dangerous game uh that that I that I dearly uh don't wish to play uh, you you could I mean but do you, do you think that they really modern people are singing when they pray was there anything legitimate that uh that, that I think there was one church that a lot of people got sick you know I guess they weren't practicing social distancing and then they went, you know, threw out the baby with the bathwater. You can't, you can't Honestly, have more than 10 if, people. If, if, if we're being uh, very candid and, and why be anything else, uh, especially <laughs> especially among friends, um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with a deep sense of alienation from, from all things uh, having to do with religious life. Mm -hmm. uh, this is so outside of the scope of the lived realities of, of so many people who make decisions that uh, to go ahead and say, oh, well, you know, houses of worship could remain closed because they're not essential, right? Uh, by which you right. mean to say, well, they're not something that I do, right? It's yet another reminder of how privilege really works, right? Of, of how some uh, of, of, of these regulations uh, that, that the people making decisions take to be uh, completely objective uh, really have to do with their own uh, self-perceptions and, and, and lived experiences and, and, and ways that they interact with the world. Uh, at the same time, I think a lot of religious communities, uh, while staying and remaining uh, very vigilant about uh, public health things, said, look, life cannot uh, stop uh, for, for an unlimited period of time. In fact, there is something monstrous uh, about the idea that uh, we ought to cower in fear. We ought to take precautions uh, whenever possible, yes. But our, our guiding principle must always be how can we enable more and more and more communal interaction because uh, notions like uh, alienation and loneliness uh, and depression yeah. yeah. and, and, you know, families breaking apart, those are public health risks as well. Uh, 100%. 100%. And I'll, I'll tell you something also just, um, and I don't know how much you're familiar, but 
should write about this also because um, and a largely unspoken population that is in in the which is at risk for exactly what you're sharing is the MJE cohort, 20s and 30s singles. You see, you know, if you're a family and you cocoon yourself with your family, or even if you're an older person, so this older person has got a much, much higher risk. But here you have people that are not as at risk. And if they don't come to MJE, they don't come to shul, they don't, some of them are stuck in their two by four apartments in, in Upper West Side, Upper East Side, Midtown Manhattan, there's nothing. There's no alternative. There are people who come. We have a minion every Shabbat. We were outside till about two months ago, socially distant, and then we moved inside. And this one um, gentleman came over me and says, you know, this is my only social interaction of the week. And we do our kiddishes on the roof so we can eat outside. And we do the service inside, you know, six feet, HEPA filters, cross ventilation, plexiglass. We got the whole kit and caboodle. But I, I really appreciate what you're saying because it's, um, uh, I, for the first time in my whole rabbinic career, I kept my phone on Shabbat because I have students who were, um, I don't want to say suicidal, God forbid, but it was bordering on that, what? you know, and, and, um, but how do you then feel about the other, oh, I want to say one positive thing about New York state or New York city. We did have a lot of, um, support and help from the NYPD and local, people here for high holiday services. I got a lot of space. I had close to 400 people that prayed with us for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur outside. And we literally took over blocks in New York City, which I don't know if that ever happened, where you literally had hundreds of Jews praying on the street. The streets were not blocked off. So you had pedestrians, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, just walking through with their dogs, doing grocery shopping, all the delivery men coming through. And I have to tell you, the sentiment that we got from those passerbyers was nothing other than positive. And, um, you know, lots of pro-Biden all over because it was during the election, you know, it was, and, and, and it was clearly, you know, we're in New York City. But there was a tremendous, I think, support, like, you know, all the power to you, Rabbi. I can't even tell you how many people we just included in the service as they were walking by. So I, I wanted to mention that. But how do you feel then about what's happened in the more... I guess Hasidic parts, um, uh, ultra orthodox parts of the community. And I'm not generalizing, because I know that many ultra orthodox Jews have been very careful, have taken precautions, wear masks, but we also know that uh, a good segment has not either. So how do you kind of, I don't know, na navigate both of those? Look, I'm 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 an, I'm an outlier. Uh, I I will say that that when you look at my um, my my Haredi brothers and sisters. Um, I find uh, that for the most part, uh, I think the community, which is inherently at, at greater risk because it is a community where intergenerational families, uh, which is one risk factor, live together in very tight quarters, which is another risk factor, uh, handled things admirably from, from, from two different perspectives. Um, first of all, uh, from the perspective of actually uh, taking precautions, uh, because you could, uh, if if you wanted to, look at some some actual uh, facts and figures. For example, when the city was deciding uh, where to give the vaccine first, uh, the de Blasio administration, which you know some uh, of our listeners may remember, blamed the Jews first in April, uh, put out a list of the zip codes that were worst hit by COVID. Over time, uh, literally not a single one among them uh, was a Haredi neighborhood in Brooklyn or elsewhere. Um, so that, first of all, I think teaches us something uh, about this, this myth that, that Haredi communities were, were somehow worse hit. Uh, so that, I think, gives us all, all the uh, indication that we need that precautions were taken. But, but I think the Haredi community did something else uh, that, uh, that is admirable and something that I personally wish to emulate, and, and that's that. Um, but, how do you, but just even before you say the second point, and I want to hear the second point, but what about those pictures of, you know, the, the weddings and the, the large gatherings? I myself was in Muncie uh, right. for a couple no. of months. I went into some shuls. 
to dive in to pray, and I couldn't I couldn't go inside. Nobody was wearing any mask, and they were on top of each other. Right. There, there, there were, uh, and and sadly, I know this also from 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 experience, uh, having having had friends who were there uh, and or uh, seen photos uh, snapped on cell phones and were driven by. Uh, but there were bars uh, on the Lower East Side, uh, or in Bushwick, or in Greenpoint, where hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people were congregating every week. For months, they were not reported to us because the people right. in these gatherings—they look like us. They're not the weird ones with the beards and the black hats. They're not the ones we're taught to fear. They're the right kind of Jews, not "quote unquote" the wrong kind of Jews that we're supposed to feel othered and alienated from. Uh, but, but sure. I, I want to turn the whole thing on its head and say that there's a second thing that I think we need to learn from our Haredi brothers and sisters, which is learning um, to put things in perspective. Uh, when when this pandemic started. Uh, and and uh, or not so much when it started, let's say in 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 June or July, August. Uh, I I would hear so many of my friends saying, "Oh well, you know, I really miss Shul. I can't believe that we won't have Rosh Hashanah services together." Uh, oh, but isn't it great that my favorite Japanese restaurant has outdoor seating? Uh, because it was virtually impossible to get a seat at almost any kind of Upper West Side restaurant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when they see the side. The fact, uh, and I'm very glad and not at all surprised to hear that MJE kept the torch going and met in person, but many, 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 many other communities didn't and many other individuals didn't. Uh, and, and here's why. Uh, because it simply wasn't a priority. Not like restaurants were, not like vacations were, not like a lot of other things that rank much higher uh, on the priority list. I think what the Haredi community has shown us uh, is that what a community could actually do and achieve when it actually works together and when it actually preserves its own values and continues to sanctify, and I don't use this word lightly, uh, what truly matters to it, uh, how it could keep Jewish life vibrant and safe and present uh, and, and thriving without succumbing to this, to this initial step of saying like, oh, we will shut down uh, at the first notion of trouble. We would listen to experts even when it becomes very clear that the experts are, are failing gravely and are causing you know, tens of thousands of deaths, uh, as is now you know, sadly being reported about uh, our great state of New York. Um, a community that uh, really, I think, stood firm, uh, that remained uh, healthily skeptical, that remained compliant with uh, what was important and evident, uh, that remained overall healthy, uh, and most importantly, that remained dedicated to the values that had seen it through much greater challenges than this and shall see it through much greater challenges than this. Uh, our tendency in, in quote-unquote secular world uh, to resort uh, and revert back to, again, this kind of atomization, every person for himself or herself, every family for itself, is disastrous. And, and this, is, this is a large part of the reason why we're simply not able to beat it, because we don't have a society anymore. We have, you know, just this connection of individuals that expect local government or national government to take care of all the problems. This is not how human beings actually live. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I I appreciate what you're sharing. I, first of all, I'm in complete agreement that um, Jewish life, synagogue life, is essential. And it, it was really embarrassing that um, the people we live with in this great city did not see it that way uh, and let bars and restaurants stay open and not shuls. And that's absolutely wrong. Um, and you have to you have to admire a community and I love the way you talk about ultra-Orthodox as our brothers and sisters, okay? And, and, and that's, that's exactly what it is, nothing, nothing less. Um, at the same time, I would take issue, use two words, safe and healthy, okay? The only thing I would take issue respectfully is that I just don't think it was always safe. And unfortunately, a lot of people died. And a lot of people... Now, would some of those people have died anyway? I think you made the point that that community is much more susceptible and vulnerable because you have multifamily units living with each other, as you said. So that's just going to happen. But the question is, I remember last Purim. We're about to hit Purim again. Okay, and we weren't going to close. I wasn't sure what to do. I'd come into contact with someone who tested positive, so I couldn't go. So one of my colleagues was going to run it, Rabbi Ezra, and he said, Mark, I don't think it's a good idea. And I have to say, it's a year later. I'm happy we didn't 
I'm happy we closed. And because people died from Purim. And in the next couple of months, some of those same parts of the community, not all of them, but I know some of them stayed open without masks and they were not careful and they were not safe. And as a result, they didn't stay healthy. Um, that Now, that's, I think that's the reality, not, you know, of part of the community. And I also think what you said before is also the reality, which was that New York City was incredibly unfair, discriminatory, blamed. You know, I think they're both true. And I, I think- want to add one, one more, one more reminder, uh, which I think, which I think, sadly, is is a really important reminder. And and this one is not about religion as much as it about science. Um, science is not religion. Uh, I say this because I believe it needs to be said. Uh, science is a methodology, uh, and it's a methodology that is predicated uh, on skepticism, uh, on the idea that uh, things change, that available data changes, and with it. Uh, recommendations change, which is why it's silly, for example, to say, oh, the experts don't know anything because at first they told us not to put on masks and then they told us to put on masks. Well, that's what happens when more data becomes available and different, better ideas come along. However, when you sink, uh, as as I would say, the overwhelming majority of at least people I know in my social circles, right, have sunk uh, into this idea of like, we must uh, absolutely never ever question anything uh, that is told us by anyone at any level and never ever make any decisions for ourselves. I would say, A, not only is that uh, deeply uh, contrary to the spirit of this year, United States of America, uh, or this year, Judaism, but also really to the spirit of science, which which invites us uh, to to observe uh, recorded facts, uh, to act accordingly, uh, to uh, understand the risks as we're taking them, and to do precisely what you just said you did. You know, it's Purim. What do we do? We know that we don't know enough. We know that the risk is real. We cancel. As far as I'm concerned, difficult decision, exactly the right one to do. What scares me is that when people become religious fundamentalists and say, no, 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 nothing here is open to question. We need right. to double down. Right. And- yeah, that definitely that definitely happens. It's some kind of a culture war. It's not. Yeah. It's, it has nothing to do with any of it. It's strictly science, which is based on what we know when we know it. Yeah, I, I well, I just, you know, the one thing that I want to make sure that my students know, because we actually had this conversation just last week online. Um, with my fellowship group, we were talking about COVID restrictions. I'm, you know, 20s and 30s, New York City, incredibly um, careful. And you would think maybe not as careful if they're not living with their parents, their home, you know, now everybody's different. People are doing different things. And we are doing what we can to stay open, to keep as vibrant as possible, and to keep as safe as possible. And you have to find that right balance. That's what every community is struggling to do. And now that we have a vaccine and little by little, we're going to be able to, you know, get out of this. We need to get out of this. Um, and I'm afraid, I know, you know, the famous movie Shawshank Redemption that we become institutionalized, you know, that we get so used to cowering and so used to staying inside that we're never going to come out. And I, and I'm, I'm having this conversation with students of mine who are singles who want to come out, but are just so used to being inside that they actually need a little, come on, it's like after Noah waited, he waited for the water to subside, and he waited, and God was like, what are you waiting for? It's time, the flood is over, it's time to re-enter you know, society, and this is the time we're in now, where we're starting to come back out. See, I, I love I love that uh, analogy. Uh, I I take uh, a, a, a slightly grimmer view of it because to me, it's not just about coming out; it's what you're coming out to. Uh, there is there's a brilliant book published recently by uh, Moshe Coppel called Judaism Straight Up, in which he makes the very good observation uh, that one thing that makes uh, halacha, uh, you know, genius. Uh, is that it is neither top down nor bottom up. Uh, it is a system of of rules, observations, uh, and and decision making that is predicated on authority and experts. Those are the rabbis. Uh, it is predicated on what people uh, in the community can and will and can't and won't do, and predicated on the back and forth between between all those things to make sure that every 
changing condition uh, is met in a in a smart, thoughtful, emotionally intelligent way. Um, I think that one of the things that we're seeing with COVID, and and one reason why so many countries across the world uh, are are failing so spectacularly at meeting something that you would think for for modern industrialized wealthy nations wouldn't be or shouldn't be so hard. It's precisely because we've lost the ability to live halachically. It's precisely because we are now a collection of individuals who depend on uh, on on a state or a city or a, a, a republic uh, to go out and care for all the needs that we have that need meeting. Uh, it's precisely because we've lost the ability to to live communally that we're having such trouble. And and when we get out of it, even if, if life is declared right now to be perfectly safe and there could be baseball games and restaurants and concerts and everything is okay. I think many of us, uh, I hope many of us, uh, and, and this will be on an info, on a, on a, on a hopeful note, uh, have seen that the real uh, uh, danger to our, to our continuation as a species isn't necessarily this virus or that deadly as it may be, but it's an inability to truly live together, to truly care for each other, to truly uh, embody this wonderful phrase, you know, kol Israel aravim all of Israel are beholden to one another, and I think it applies uh, in, in certain terms also to, to all of humankind. Uh, if we don't know how to do that, if we just are some people expecting government to take care of us while we quibble on who gets a vaccine when and whether or not vitamin D has anything to do with you know, getting COVID, et cetera, we're completely doomed because there will be another virus and another and another. And and we just have seen how vulnerable we are and how desperately we need each other. Well, I appreciate um, how significant you take community, and not just for Jews, but for the world over. It's a great way to bring this to a close um, because you, I have to tell you, uh, Leo, I love the we um, embrace that you have uh, when you talk. You, you you share what you believe, but you're saying it in a way that's inclusive. And you're concluding now with uh, a, a a call for community, uh, which is really um, I, I so much agree how important that is, and and how helpful that would be to to deal with any future uh, situation that we, it's, we're we're desperate for it. We need it. And um, I thank you so much for giving us your time and your wisdom. Um, you have such great insights. Um, please, everyone listening to this, get any of Liel's incredible um, writings, books. Um, check out uh, Tablet and check out his, um, we didn't even mention about Unorthodox, about the podcast. That's connected with Tablet. That's um, Very much so. That's Tablet's um, podcast called Unorthodox, which is, I think, considered like the, if not the most successful, uh, most widely listened to podcast. And you can hear a little why. By iTunes, that's true. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for for joining us and for giving us your insights. Um, and Hashem should continue to bless you and your family, um, and uh, continue to inspire people and educate people, and um, and 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 enable people to see the beauty of being in the flow. The video game conversation we had was just incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, Liel Leibovitz, uh, get his stuff, podcast, books, articles, and uh, we hope to uh, to stay in touch. And I'm looking forward for my son to be able to take a full semester with you. Rabbi, thank <laughs> you so much for everything you do, and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Liel. This is awesome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.